Hi, Guy here. Welcome to a special edition of Creative Forces. The first of two, in fact. Um, it's been such a brilliant first five months uh, since the podcast launched. We've had 13 amazing guests, more than 12,000 listens already. Thank you to everyone who has listened so far and who's shared it. So I thought it'd be great to compile some of the best moments so far. So that's what's going to happen um, in this episode and the next one. The first bit in this episode is from Ajaz Ahmed, the founder and chief executive of the new media agency AKQA, who I asked in episode four what he wanted to be when he was at school. I think I didn't, I didn't really give it that much thought. So I, I, I think that I, I look at my entire existence as, as an adventure and serendipity, okay. that one connection leads to another connection that leads to another connection. And I think the fact that I grew up with the internet as a technological revolution, and I was of the age where I was naive enough to, at, at 21, think starting a company was a was a great idea and fortunately it turned out to be a wonderful idea that I've had a lot of opportunities to work with great people mm-hmm. and work with you know phenomenal organizations and work with you know and I think that I think it's just been a great journey so so I I kind of yeah I don't tend to didn't tend to give it that much thought when I was a kid. Okay. And you mentioned the, the decision to set up AKQA because you were actually at Bath University mm. at that time, weren't you? What were you studying there, and and why did you what what you dropped out from doing the course to to found the company? So, what was it that made you think, actually, I don't need to do this. I want to. I'm going to do this instead. Absolutely love. Bath as a place so the city so when I was looking at universities I, I kind of went to visit all the various locations and I completely fell in love with with Bath as a city the architecture is gorgeous and influential and the surrounding countryside is just brilliant and it just had this real appeal and attraction and that was that was the, the city itself and then the course that I wanted to study was business and it happened to be the best business undergraduate degree that available. So then that became the ambition to get on that course because it's fiercely competitive. So to try and get on that course and, and, and make sure that I learn. And then I loved it, enjoyed, you know, I'm still great friends with the people who I shared a house with, they're brilliant friends. We kind of still catch up regularly. And what happened at Bath was a friend who lived next door said, Charles, Charles, I've got to show you something at the computer lab. And took me over to the computer lab and showed me a picture that had been, that was on the screen. And he clearly explained that that picture had been downloaded from America. And I suppose that for me was just convergence in action. So the fact that this high resolution or medium resolution photograph had been obtained from America and downloaded in real time, that proved that the multimedia revolution was in full swing or the beginning 
it was beginning to get in full swing. Mm. And because I was lucky to have worked since I was 15, that I, that the, I thought, well, I put all that into action. And, and, you know, a lot of the people I'd read about, they'd either never, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs or influences I had as, in my formative years as a kid, they hadn't gone to university or they dropped out of university. So it wasn't an abstract, you know, and today it's, it's very common that people, you yeah. know, just a cliche that you get the university dropout mm. that starts a tech firm. Yeah. And so I suppose I was the original cliche <laughs> <laughs> or one of the original cliches. But because I'd read and understood that a lot of the, the, peop the, the people who I admired had gone through a similar journey with, ver with varying levels of success, mm. but didn't, didn't put me off. Back in episode five, I spoke to the dating industry expert, Charlie Lester. It was an amazing conversation about her incredibly varied career. And as part of the conversation, she told me why she loves taking on challenges. I literally, I'm one of those people where if there's a mountain, I will climb it. So I've done some silly things over the years. I've, I've trekked to Everest Base Camp. I've done Kilimanjaro. I think I was quite young when I did that. But um, I travelled around the world on my own and um, and climbed Mount Aconcagua on my own, which is probably the most dangerous thing I've ever done in my life. Should I'm you have done that? No, it was out of season and I was carrying, basically, because I was traveling around the world on my own, I had no camping gear, so I had to hire it all. And um, and the stuff I hired was meant to be um, for four people. So I had a four-man tent, a four-person cooking setup. <laughs> it was ridiculous. I think I was, like, carrying my own body weight on my back, trying to climb a mountain on my own, <laughs> out of season. At one point, I was camping on my own at the side of the highway with all these massive lorries going between Chile and Argentina and just thinking to myself I'm actually going to get raped in my, in my sleep like genuinely it's the only time I've ever been that scared mm. and I've padlocked the inside of my tent as if that was going to do much um, if someone was going to try and attack me <laughs> but um yeah so I've done I've done a couple of silly things because when I see a mountain or a marathon or a race I'm like yeah I could do that um but I probably then apply that same logic to business mm. so um so uh, I came up with the dating awards idea simply because no one, no one in the space was running awards, and and I think I liked that challenge, that idea that okay, I've just had this idea, how far can I run with this? Mm. Um, so I went from literally not working in the dating space. I was writing a dating blog. Um, I knew quite a few of the players in the dating space had this idea and thought, you know what? Let me see what I can do with this. Um, and it and ended up being an international set of awards, which is quite cool. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the blog. I mean, just tell us about that. I know you'll have told this story many times, but you you were working in finance, is that right? And then you you yeah. set up uh, the blog when you were sort of urged to do so by a couple of friends. Is that right? Yeah. So I I was working in a bank. I am um, working for a bank, and. Um, and I had just started online dating. I'd always been a bit put off online dating because it seemed a bit sad and a bit desperate, if I'm completely honest. Mm. And um, and I and I tried a dating site called Plenty of Fish. And I had my first date was one of those really stereotypical ones where you turn up and the guy is like a foot shorter than he said he was going to be and <laughs> looks nothing like his photos and thought, oh, God, this is awful. And then the second day I went on, um, I met this amazing guy and I thought, oh, I've met my future husband. And we went on a few more dates. And it was before the term ghosting existed, but basically he ghosted me. And this and is I, this is Henley Boy, isn't it? This is the Henley Boy, the yeah. Henley boy, and yeah. so um, and he was called Henley Boy because um, he was from Henley. Mm. Um, 
And I mean, and it was quite funny because there were people using the phrase Henley boy in the way that people use ghosting because <laughs> ghosting didn't exist at that point. So people would email me and be like, I've had a Henley boy. <laughs> um, and, and he, you know, he's obviously fully aware of the blog and contacts me every now and again, which is quite funny. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, at the time he just disappeared. He just, um, to the point where I remember Googling to see if a bus had hit him or something. Like genuinely, he went from calling me every night to just disappearing and just not replying to any messages um, and not turning up to dates that we planned. Um, and, and I realized that I was now going around work. I'd gone from bouncing around my work like a Cheshire cat to just so miserable. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, what? I've got three months of my 20s left. Um, it was, I think it was June of 2013. My birthday was at the end of the summer. And I was like, well, I could spend all summer moping over this guy that I met a couple of weeks ago. Or I can try and turn this into something fun. And so kind of on a whim, I think it was like a Tuesday morning. I was a bit bored at work. I wrote a Facebook status to my friends just saying, um, look, I've got three months left of my th- of my 20s. If you guys send me on 30 blind dates, I'll try and fit them in between now and then. And my friends just embraced it. Like, I think it was shared about 50 times in the first hour. Um, they were literally off- offering up their neighbors, their friends, their husbands, um, women. They just thought it was so funny. Like, people just wanted to, you know, to watch me go on these dates. And um, and so on their, on their advice, I set up a blog. Um, and the first night the blog, um, the first blog post I wrote, that night 2,000 people read it because my, my friends on Facebook shared it so much. Um, so suddenly I actually had to stick out the challenge. Mm. Um, <laughs> and as I said, I love a challenge anyway. So, um, yeah, so I, um, I spent the summer going on blind dates. I went to Madrid for a couple. I went out to New York. Um, the last one was the day before my 30th birthday, and I hiked up to the Hollywood sign in, in, in L.A. with an aspiring actor and just had the most amazing summer as a result. And then all the, the rest, the stuff that you do now, has all developed from there, hasn't it? So at what point did people start coming to you with, with offers of, of work, of you being able to comment or or deal, or be a, an expert in this, this dating field? Well, so it was quite early on because one thing I realized when I started writing about the dates is that people were asking me quite a lot of questions about other aspects of dating. So dating events, um, you know, dating apps. It was the, really the first summer that Tinder sort of appeared on the scene and I was one of the first people writing about Tinder. Um, and I started answering the questions and thought, well, maybe I should be reviewing these things. So I, I you know, and, and, I, and I'm one of those people who never does something you know, if I'm if I if I'm doing something, I do it properly. Like I properly throw myself in. So the nights that I wasn't going on dates, I started going into London and reviewing. And um, so I was living in Reading at the time. So I'd go into London specifically to review um, dating events. And I went to a Guardian event that was awful, like really, really bad. And I wrote a really honest review of why it was bad. Yeah, what was and, bad about it? Um, well, they had about three men there and about three hundred women, um, <laughs> they, which was a bit of not a great ratio. Not great when it's a straight event, no. no. And um, and then they um, they were just lots of things like they didn't really mingle us, and it felt a bit school disco like, and there were just some things that they could have done that would have made it a lot better. And I explained what they could have done, and um, and they got in touch with me, and I thought they and it, they got in touch with me very quickly. So they obviously had Google alerts set up, and um, and I thought they were going to ask me to take it down, and they actually they contacted me and said, do you know what? We've never done a dating event before. We really appreciated your your criticism. Will you come in and, and consult for us? Mm. Um, and so I went in and started consulting for Guardian Soulmates on a bit of an ad hoc basis, and they um, they had decided they wanted a, a, a blog for Guardian Soulmates to improve their own SEO. Um, 
and and interestingly the at the guardian um the um the corporate side worked very differently to the editorial side so they couldn't use um editorial content from the guardian so they needed other content for their blog um, and so they said well you know will you blog for us and within a few months they'd said well actually your blog's the most successful ones we've got on there and and your tone fits with what we're trying to do do you want to edit our blog um, and at that point, they offered me basically a sum every month that would cover my rent and my living expenses mm. on top of, and I, you know, and I was working full time in banking. And I thought, you know what, why don't I just give this a go? I've got at least a six month contract with The Guardian. You know, I know I can cover, cover my costs. Where can I take this? In the very first episode of Creative Forces, I spoke to the author and publisher, Nick Royal, and he told me where his ideas come from. They come from all around me, for yeah. every, everything that happens. Um, occasionally, they'll come... I mean, they often come from images. Things will start with images. So it'll be something that I've seen. It's almost always something that I've seen. Um, it's very rarely... Actually, I don't know about that. Um, I was going to say it's very rarely um, an abstract idea. Um, it's usually an image. So for the novel, the director's cut, it was the image of a strip of celluloid and it was the idea that a, that a piece of amber resembles a strip of celluloid, especially a piece of amber that has something in it, um, an inclusion, an insect or something. That's like a piece of celluloid with images on it. They're caught in it's a similar colour um, and it's about something being caught in it, and they're both images, and you, they both allow light to shine through them. Uh, and it was my mum who gave me the idea for the amber in that novel because she mentioned to me that that there was... Um, she lives in East Anglia, and she'd either seen people or she'd heard about people, women, always women, walking along the uh, the the beach looking for pieces of amber that get washed, washed up from the Baltic. Um, and I was, uh, my imagination was caught by that image of, of women looking for pieces of amber and thinking why they're looking for them, what do they contain? And um, so that's where that particular novel came Is from. Is that often the case with ideas that become a novel or a short story, that it's an image yeah. as much as, a, as an idea? You know, it's not a visual thing. Yeah, very often it's a visual thing, uh, but not always... Uh, an object. Often an object, but, but not always. Um, I mean, I've got an idea for a story that I'm thinking about, turning over in my head, that I have been doing for the last few weeks that I haven't started writing yet, that isn't... Uh, doesn't come from an image at all. It's it is that thing that I said I almost never write about, which is an abstract idea. But it's it's something. It's a phenomenon. Uh, so that, you know, occasionally I will write about phenomena. Uh, it's something that I've noticed. Um, if if I'm trying to, um, I play football. As you know, we've played football together. Yes. Um, and I organise a weekly game. And if I'm trying to think of all 10 people who I know are due to play on a Wednesday night, I find that I can often think of nine of them, including myself, but I can't think of the last one. And I find that really interesting. And often, and I do cryptic crosswords. I do the Guardian, crypt, no, the Observer Everyman cryptic crossword. Often, I'll finish it up to the last clue, and I find I can't do the last clue. So... <laughs> 
clearly there's something interesting going on there. What? Yeah. And I don't know what it is. So why, yeah, why is that then? Or, don't is, know. Have you thought of any, have you come to any no, sort but, of... No, but when I write the story, it will be a question of, of yes. trying to answer that question. Why does it happen? Uh, I've noticed it because it happens, but why does it happen? That's interesting to me, and, and writing the story will, story will be a process of trying to find out why it happens. Um, and maybe I won't find the answer, and that doesn't really matter, because um, writing for me is is a, a process of, of asking questions. And as a reader, I like to read stuff that, that asks questions and doesn't necessarily answer them. Um, I think some readers maybe want everything answered and want everything cut and dried and tied up at the end, whereas I like questions left hanging and I like ambiguity. I like things that, you know, it could be this, it could be that. Um, do you plot out a novel or do you just no. start? No, I just start. start with I mean, the I, might, idea. I might plot out a little bit, a chapter or two, or I might have a very, very rough idea of where I want to head towards, um, but not how to get there. And I, I certainly don't, I'm not a plotter. I mean, some of my novels have plots, but they're constructed very slowly and gradually as I go. Um, and even if I could plot in advance, I don't think I would. Um, because I don't think I'd be interested then in writing it. Because um, partly for me, the fun and interest in writing it is a question of finding out how to write it and finding out where it's going and, and how it all turns out in the end. Yeah, so it's almost, yeah, it's a, an unknown destination. You, yeah. you set off with You're, an idea and, and you see where it leads you. Yes, and in fact, this comes back to the, because you asked two questions. Yeah. This, this, in a sense, answers the other question, who is, my, who is the reader that I'm writing for? I think it's probably myself. And that might sound self-indulgent, but, it's, but I don't think it is. It's just that um, I genuinely, genuinely want to know what's going to happen in the kind of stories that I like to write, which is not to say that it's all repeating myself now but it's, when we get to the end it doesn't have to be all explained and often isn't um but there's got to be something at the end there's got to be some kind of shift or change of perspective or be, the beginnings of of a realization or or something like that but loose ends and ambiguity is you're quite yeah, happy with those i'm very concept. comfortable with those yeah. yeah i must admit i i like those elements in tv series as yeah. well and in novels where yeah. things are pop up and then the, the but they're never explained yeah and i like the sort of whether that's accidental or intentional i also like yeah. that idea yeah i think it's um, i mean if everything was boiled down just to plot and it was just about plot and there was nothing else and there were no red herrings you know because some of those things will be deliberate and there'll be red herrings and they're good fun um but you want some other stuff in there you want texture and because that that's closer to life life's got all sorts of stuff going on Back in episode two, Julianne Ponan, the founder of the health food manufacturer Creative Nature, explained to me whether it was scary going on the BBC TV programme Dragon's Den with her idea. Oh my gosh, yes, it was scary. <laughs> but I think it's, it's a good scary. It's, it makes you grow as an entrepreneur, and I would recommend Dragon's Den to everyone. Um, it's not something I would want to go through again, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but it it is something that will help you grow and help you understand. A normal investment meeting is never going to be like that. 
but it will push you so far out of your comfort zone that you learn things you never knew about yourself. What was it that scared you most? Was it the, the fact that it was on national television or was it the actual dragons themselves or, or what, what was it? It's the situation where you sort of you have so many cameras around you, but you, you've never seen the dragons. So whereas with a normal investor, you'd normally have emailed them or you'd have spoken to them, whereas you have no contact. So the situation is suddenly you're there and you're standing there and you, you don't know what they're going to be like. Um, so, yeah, that scared me. And obviously having when you're going to go on Dragon's Den, you, you've probably done your research and watched a lot of other um, clips. And just seeing, like, for example, Peter Jones ripping into someone, that kind of scared me. <laughs> Was he the one that you were most sort of um, worried about? Um, yes. Him and Deb were, 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 our most, were our biggest worry. Um, obviously, when we went on, they had a new, the two new dragons, so we never had really seen them respond to anyone before. Um, and Tuka's normally okay, so we weren't too worried about him. Who were the two new dragons? I can't remember now. Uh, Tej Lelvani, uh, um, the CEO of Vitabiotics, and Jenny, um, who is, uh, she does all the ATM cash machines. It's Jenny Campbell, isn't it? Jenny Campbell, yeah. So you actually got investment, though. Well, you the promise of investment, didn't you, um, from Deborah Meaden? Yes, we did, yeah. So what was that like when that whole negotiation process and then the, you know, when, they actually, when she made you an offer, was it kind of a huge relief at that point? Or was then, well, how did you feel when she made you the offer? Um, it, was a, it was such an amazing feeling because... We had such obviously good comments from people like Tej and Tuka, etc. But it was still that issue about the co-op and saying we hadn't been, like we hadn't gone in yet. So yeah, when she made the offer, she was the one we, we wanted because she has a lot of connections in the health industry. So it felt, it sort of was a bit of a shock. Um, we wanted it and we knew we could get an offer, but it's just when it actually happens, you're like, wow, okay, they're actually saying yes. <laughs> But you, in the end, you didn't. Uh, it didn't go through with it, did you? No, we didn't. We Why was that? Because uh, three weeks later, after we filmed, we launched into Sainsbury's and Co-op. So the valuation that we had given was was the right one, and that's not the, what we got. Which was it, it was sad because obviously we did really want to work with her, but we it, for for what we were getting. What the money we were getting for the percentage we were giving away was just not uh, right. It was not worth it. So her value, the valuation that the offer was based on was that you weren't yet in Sainsbury's old co-op, but actually you you were. So then the value, your valuation, much higher, was the true valuation. So what? How did that pan out then? When you actually turned around and said, actually, or did you try and renegotiate it? No, you can't really re- renegotiate what um, because obviously you've accepted the offer. Um, in the den so it, it's difficult to to do that but what we did we, we did speak to Deborah and her team and she was she was really nice and she wished us really really well and she said she could see where we were going places and understood so it was fantastic so did she say she understood your reasoning yeah they they, they said completely understand uh, which was great and it was it was nice to it, it ended on such a good note and so when you look back on that experience what did you take from it 
personally? You know, what, what did you learn from that experience? Oh, what did I learn? I learned to always be prepared for any question, whether it be in your personal life or business. Um, make sure you, you understand every aspect. Um, and maybe not wear heels when you're going to be in there. <laughs> Why not? Because you're standing for so long. <laughs> How long were you standing for? Oh, I think two hours. Oh, really? Because we only see a sort of, you know, six, seven minute version, don't we? Yeah, I think you guys saw 16 minutes of us. 16, okay. So that's pretty long anyway. But two hours you were standing there with, while they interrogated you. Yeah, so I would maybe say wear trainers. <laughs> <laughs> that's good advice. And did it? Uh, did it give the brand awareness that you hoped it would? It was fantastic. I, I, didn't, I couldn't believe how well we did after the show. Um, people always say, oh, yeah, you're going to sell out, etc. But we, we did sell out in Sainsbury's and co-op. And it, we didn't have enough stock. We were out of stock for a month in Sainsbury's. So what, sort of, what was the sort of percentage increase in sales you know, the following day or the following week after that appearance? Um, I'm not sure entirely, but if you imagine sort of like five, six pallets of stock just keep going out. <laughs> so it was a lot. Yeah. It, it, and then we got on a lot of different sort of, um, we got a lot of press off the back of it. So it was a fantastic platform to be on. And has that maintained that set, those sales or did it, was it a peak and then it dropped off again? Uh, it did peak. It, it really did spike. Um, but we sort of maintained and um, carried on going because after that, I was a judge on Britain's Next Top Model. So that then aired um, at the end of the year. So uh, we saw another peak, so it carried on going, the sales. Tell me about that experience. How did you get involved in that? Uh, I, met a, I met the producer at an event um, and I asked, how could I get Creative Nature involved in the... Um, in Britain's Next Top Model, and we sort of come up, came up with this idea um, for a commercial, and then um, with my social media following, etc., um, it would be good for me to become a guest judge. And yeah, we went from there. So, was that a program that you already watched? I didn't really watch it. If I, if I'm completely honest, um, I did watch America's Next Top Model, so it is very, very similar. And so were you then, obviously, you know, you'd found the, the Dragon's Den TV experience a bit scary, but were you a bit more confident going into being a judge? Yes, it was. And, and it was so it was very different because um, you have sort of a couple of days of filming and things can be edited and changed and you can see that. Whereas with um, obviously Dragon's Den, you don't know how it's going to come out and you don't know how, how you're going to be portrayed, I guess. And finally, back in episode three, I asked the illustrator, Stan Chow, how he's able to capture such amazing likenesses of the rich and famous in his iconic portraits. Yeah, this is, this is it's, it's, like, it's like a million dollar question, this is, because <laughs> if I knew, I'd be able to tell everyone mm. and bottle it. Well, maybe you don't want it, to tell anyone. No, but I don't actually, <laughs> but I think it's instinctive though, you see, it's something I was always good at. Like mm. even when I was telling before, like even at school, I just I can look at someone's face. Get I, I guess you have to learn the face. It's not like it's not something that I that I actually um, I don't look for anything. I I will actually I will study your face. You know, and from that studying of your face, I'll be able to turn your face onto the 
onto the paper, so to speak, you know what I mean? Uh, in, and I try to do it in, in as simplistic form as possible, with as little lines as possible, basically, you know? And that's, that's always been the aim, is to kind of keep it as simple as I can. But yeah, it's just a, yeah, it's it's a, something that's, that I've always known how to do. It's like, it's like learning to eat or breathe, really. It's something I, I, I take for granted now, you know? So, but I can't actually, Really, there's nothing I look for. I just it's, it's it's a case of studying your face and 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 I guess there's something in my brain that that will connect the dots and make it all work. You know what I mean? But there's no, I mean it's, I mean I I get asked all the time how do you do that <laughs> and it's like, I can't teach you that because no. I don't I don't really know how to do it myself. It's a, it's a it's a case of just basically spending all my life drawing really. And I think once when, when you do that you. You know, there's little things that you just pick up. You just don't know how you picked up, basically. It's a guess of it's trial and error, and just and like the more you do, the better you become, basically. There's no kind of there's no secret formula. I, I don't think there probably don't, is, but um, but I I don't know that formula. It's just it's just it's it's inbuilt in my DNA. So um, sorry, I can't tell you how to do it. <laughs> Are there any that have been taking you way longer than oh, others? Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there, there have been a few. Yeah, like. Um, the the people that are difficult to do are people who 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 have overexpressive faces. I mean, like 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 Chris Rock is a good example. I mean, I mean he's he's got like a jelly face. He's got like a rubber face. You know what I mean? Mm. And and the problem with his face is like you look at every picture of him. You, you try to study him, but he's got a different expression all the time. You see? You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's very what, yeah. What's his sort yeah. of definable yeah expression or uh, recognizable yeah. expression? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And um. It's that big grin, I guess. You know, <clears throat> but but the, the thing is that I, I tend to draw people without grins, mm-hmm. so finding a picture without him grinning was really hard, you know. But the thing was, is like, yeah, I was working for the New Yorker at the time, and they asked me to do Chris Rock. And normally, I'll I'll, I'll nail a job for the New Yorker in a day. I was working on Chris Chris Rock for about three four days, <laughs> and I and I finally got it. It got approved, but then literally like half an hour before. Uh, before press, before he went to uh, to press, um, uh, they changed their minds and used a photograph instead. Which is like, God. I, I, so I, it never, it was never printed. I, yeah, no, I slaved over it. Yeah, but um, but yeah, every now and again, you just, you just get people who you just can't draw. And a lot of it's, you know, a lot of it's also a lot of it's down to the fact that there's not enough pictures of them for, for me to to learn their face. You know, because when I when I do draw a face. I mean, like, obviously with celebrities, I don't, I've never met them, but I spend a bit of time watching them on YouTube. And then, like, I go on Google Images and, and look at every single picture they have, they have of them and then just make a, a judgment on how it should look on, 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 the, on the page, on the paper. Are there any that have just been, you've done it in, like, 10 minutes? You know, that have just been really, not 10 minutes, but yeah. really quick, and you're just like, I've got it straight away? Uh, yeah, loads. <laughs> <laughs> loads of them now, yeah. <laughs> And, um, can you give any examples? I mean, like the Prince one there that you can see on the wall. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was... I mean, choosing the colours for that probably took longer than actually doing it itself, you know what I mean? Is that partly because you think, you know, you, you knew his face so yeah, well yeah, anyway, yeah. you didn't yeah, have to think yeah. about it? That's pretty, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, you know. So once you, once you do know that face, it becomes... It's, the more, yeah, the more familiar you are with the person, the more... It's about confidence as well, because it's like... Like, when you don't know the face that well, it's like... Does that person look like that? You know, you know, and um, but but when you are confident with someone's face, you can just literally just put like 
the shapes down and literally it's there because you know and so sometimes it's like I, you can see the image of of the drawing in your head before you even begin that they, they have a certain face some people have that certain face where it's, it's already in, in your head <laughs>